Good morning, and turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 22. Matthew 22 is our passage for today as we work our way through this first book of the New Testament. Pastor Tate rightly prayed for those single, but in light of our passage this week, I've been thinking about weddings. I've been thinking about how special weddings are. Our daughter, Caitlin, was married in May of this year, and many of you were there. Many of you helped to make it a a glorious event. Uh, Natalie France, who was on the violin today, she's about to be married to Brian in just uh, a few days, and I'm sure that will be wonderful. Weddings are special. No matter how close we are to the bride and groom, they are special. Haven't you ever been to a hotel and there is a wedding going on there and you can't help but smile knowing that the occasion is right there? You, you, you peek over, you want to see what's going on, you want to see how everyone looks. Some are even tempted to join in even though they don't know them. They're called wedding crashers. Well, in light of our passage, I've not only been thinking about weddings, but thinking about just how big and how fancy and how significant and how elite some of them can be. I was reminded of royal weddings, the royal weddings of the last couple of decades. Prince William and Kate were married in 2011, Prince Harry in and Megan were married in 2018. And many of us remember those weddings. Many of us tuned in on our televisions to watch those weddings take place. Even as Americans who don't really get royalty and all that that means and all that that represents, we too are drawn into and fascinated by the tradition, the pomp and circumstance, the extravagance And the who's who in attendance there. I googled it this week. There were 800 guests at Harry and Meghan's wedding. 800 is a big wedding. But it's only 800 from all over the world. And so that is a very elite event. Can you imagine if you were invited to a royal wedding? Take your pick, either Harry's or William's, because I know you have a favorite. Imagine being invited to Harry or William's wedding. Can you imagine being invited to one of those weddings and turning it down, having something better to do? Could you imagine? Could you imagine trying to sneak into such a wedding? That'd be a dangerous task, wouldn't it? Can you imagine trying to sneak in? Could you imagine showing up in street clothes? Could you imagine blatantly ignoring the royal expectations and norms? doing what you want and embarrassingly getting kicked out of this royal wedding? 
Well, in Matthew 22, Jesus tells a story of a royal wedding which involves many of those unimaginable things. On top of that, it's not just a story of a royal wedding, but it's the story of the royal wedding. So look down in your Bibles as I read the first 14 verses of Matthew 22. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered. Everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry, and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding feast is ready. But those who were invited are not worthy. Go, therefore, to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to his attendants, Bind him hand and foot and cast him into outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. Another parable. The passage begins, verse 1, again Jesus spoke to them in parables. Remember, parables are made-up stories meant to illustrate truth in a provocative way, often a surprising way. Not every character or element of a parable symbolically represents something else, but But many characters and elements in the parable represent something else, something real. And those representative, symbolic parts make up an overall message. So what's the overall message of this parable? Well, remember the context, the literary context. It's Tuesday of the Passion Week, just three days before the crucifixion of Jesus. And Jesus is in an extended conversation, or debate, we should say, with the Jewish religious leaders at the temple. They asked him back in chapter 21, verse 23, by what authority do you do the things that you do? By what authority? Jesus did not directly answer that question But he soon began to indirectly answer that question, even going beyond that question, as he relayed three parables back 
to back to back. Three parables. We've seen the first two in recent weeks, and today we come to the third and final. The three parables are related. They have many similarities. They all mention a son, and they all deal with who's in and who's out in the kingdom, who's included and who's excluded in the kingdom. Each of the parables has an element of surprise or reversal. Those who would be thought to be accepted and included in the kingdom are rejected and and excluded because they refuse to listen to God and to his son. And yet those who would seem to be excluded from God's favor because of their past, because of their sin, they are included. The overall message is the same in all three parables. The Jewish religious leaders who had rejected John the Baptist, who are rejecting Jesus, they are about to face judgment, divine judgment for this. Their long line of rejecting messengers sent by God had now culminated in their rejection of God's Son. And so they would be removed and others would take their place. That's the big picture. That's the overall message of the three parables. I make no apologies for the fact that these are all very similar. It is Jesus who put them all together. It is Jesus who thinks we need to hear all three of these parables which have a lot of similarities, and yet there are some differences. There is escalation, especially in this last one. We can trace the drama of this parable over four parts, with four headings. Here's the first. It is a gracious invitation. A gracious invitation to this royal wedding feast. Notice that the whole scene, the whole parable, is a window into the kingdom of heaven, verse 2 says. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. Those are synonymous. That is God's reign on earth through his son. Back in Matthew chapter 3, it was John the Baptist before Jesus began his ministry. John the Baptist was preaching, the kingdom of God is at hand. It's near. It's about to come. Get ready. And Jesus has been showing how it is now here. So the parable shows us that the son's arrival, the kingdom's arrival, is like a great and glorious feast. Now, that idea did not come out of nowhere. Jesus did not pull this out of a hat. Now, back in Isaiah 25, listen to these verses, 600 years before Jesus came. Isaiah 25, 6 through 8, the Lord will make for all peoples a feast, 
of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food, full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined. And he will swallow up the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. Now, obviously, that promises some things that are not for this age, but ultimately for the end of time, the end of this age. Those things are actually mentioned in the last two chapters of the Bible, Revelation 21 and 22. That's the end of the story, a new heaven and a new earth when death is no more and sadness is done. But Jesus' first coming began to fulfill that very stuff. And that's why we sometimes speak of the promises of the Bible in this age. They are fulfilled. We say, now and not yet. Say that with me. Now and not yet. You have to know that. It's integral to the New Testament and to what we experience as Christians and yet what also awaits us in a further day to come. So Jesus came to begin to fulfill the promises of that glorious feast foretold in Isaiah 25, what scholars have called the Messianic feast, the the Messianic feast. It's no coincidence that Jesus' first miracle in John chapter 2, was at a wedding. And what did he make? Water into wine. Well-aged wine. Good wine. It's no coincidence. It's no coincidence that Jesus came celebrating and feasting and eating with repentant sinners. He had the reputation of being a glutton and a drunkard. Wrongly so, but there's a reason he got the reputation. He was at parties. He was known to celebrate. It's no coincidence then that Jesus said back in Matthew 9 that fasting is hardly appropriate when the bridegroom has arrived. It's time to celebrate. Back to the parable, it is a parable of a wedding feast for the king's son. And these different parts of the parable represent different things. The wedding feast is that messianic banquet. The king, of course, represents God. The son, obviously, is Jesus. Those invited to the marriage feast are the people of Israel, including the leaders whom Jesus is addressing. And the servants sent out with the king's invitation, they represent the prophets of the Old Testament, John the Baptist, and on the other side of Jesus' death and resurrection, they also represent the apostles and missionaries and evangelists and everyday Christians like you and me, who bring the word of the invitation to the world. Now notice that there are a couple rounds of responses to the invitation 
the second half of verse 3, and then verse 5, and both of them are rejections. We'll get there soon. But just skipping ahead a bit, we can try to appreciate the lavish extravagance of the feast that's described in the second invitation in verse 4. The feast is like this. It's oxen and fat calves that have been slaughtered. Everything is ready. Come to the feast. This is a feast fit for a king and a king's son and his wedding. The wedding feast, even for average middle-class families in these days, would have lasted a whole week. And this one, too. But it is fancier and bigger than any wedding any average person had ever been to. It is bigger and fancier than any wedding anyone in this room has ever been to. It is extravagant and abundant. And all is provided the table is set. No expense spared. And the recipients of the invitation need only to respond. They need only to come. And when they come, they freely receive and enjoy. And there is unthinkable privilege to be included in such a royal invitation as this. The royal wedding. This is more special and more significant than any of the weddings of the house of Windsor. This is a gracious invitation. This is what Jesus' kingdom is like. This is what we've entered into if we follow him. A lavished feast freely provided ours to enjoy if we simply receive the invocation invitation to come hence rejection of the invitation is unthinkable secondly we see an unthinkable rejection king sent out his servants to invite those who were invited. Second half of verse 3, but they would not come. Refusal of a king's invitation in these days would have been breathtakingly insulting. It would have brought shame to the king and his kingdom and his son. But they would not come. Literally in the Greek, it's they did not want to come. It's astounding. It's unthinkable. And then there's that second round of invitation. Now in verse 4, with more urgency, with the feast now ready, he sent other servants, tell those who are invited, I, I've prepared my dinner. My oxen and fat calves have been slaughtered. Everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. And even more astounding, more unthinkable is the second round of rejection, which actually comes to us in two different forms, if you notice that. There's indifference 
from some and there's violence from others. Indifference in verse 5, they paid no attention and went off. One to his farm, another to his business. Can you imagine the royal invitation given twice? The first rejection graciously ignored by this king. A second invitation, and again, they paid no attention. They thought they had better things to do. One said, I think it's the day for putting on new horseshoes. And another said, I think it's the day where I got to do the books for the business. But others responded with violent opposition. In verse 6, they seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. This is so unnecessary. It's so senseless. It is as senseless as getting a wedding invitation in the mail and getting so mad at the person who sent the invitation that you decide to kill the mailman. It doesn't make any sense. And how shall this king respond? He was patient with the first instance of rejection. But his patience will not be spurned forever. This king will not be mocked. This king is patient, yes, but he is also just. So verse 7, the king was rightly angry. He sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Now remember that these parables are directed toward the religious leaders of Jesus' day. The parables are for them, to them, about them, and remember, the parables warn of judgment that is coming on those religious leaders and really all of unbelieving Israel. They have all, not every single one of them, but the majority of Israelites in those days, they have had a long history of rejecting God's servants, the prophets, and that trend culminates with their rejection of the Messiah, Jesus, God's Son. The, the wedding feast that they knew about from Isaiah 25 was beginning to be presented to them. They were being invited in, and they have doubly spurned that invitation, and now judgment is coming. And that will just keep getting clearer and clearer in this section of Matthew. In Matthew 22 and 23, it'll just keep getting clearer and clearer. Jesus will just keep turning the screws and turning the screws about the judgment that's coming on unbelieving Israel and especially these leaders. And it will culminate in chapter 24 with Jesus' unmistakable words there about the temple. He will say in Matthew 24, Verse 2, you see all these stones of the temple? 
there will not be one stone left upon another, but all will be thrown down. Jesus predicted the temple would be destroyed. And in the year A.D. 70, Jerusalem was sacked and burned, and the temple was destroyed. It has not been rebuilt since. So what eventually happened in A.D. 70 and what Jesus unmistakably foretold in Matthew 24, verse 2, was probably also foreshadowed in our parable with those three words at the end of verse 7. Burned the city. Why is that part of the parable? Why, why need to say that? I think it's just a hint. It's a hint of what's to come. It's an ominous hint. So is that it then? Is A.D. 70 the end of the story? Is there no wedding? Are there no guests at the feast? Thirdly, there's an extended invitation in the parable. Verses 8 through 10. Let's read those again. He said to his servants, The wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go, therefore, to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. The invitation now goes out to the crossroads. That's literally what it says in our passage. The invitation goes to the thoroughfares. It goes to where the most people are. The invitation extends to any and to all who will hear and who will come. The invitation is now indiscriminately given. The invitation has been extended to those far away, to any and all, to those who are far off. There is no heritage, there is no pedigree, there is no background or ancestry, there is no status that is required to qualify for the invitation. There is no moral track record, and there is no plan for moral improvement. The good and the bad, verse 10, are invited. That is, those who have been relatively moral in man's eyes and those who have had a reputation for being bad and immoral. They're all invited. You know, like tax collectors and prostitutes, as Jesus talked about in chapter 21, verse 23. They are entering the kingdom of heaven already. That's who Jesus came for. For those who know that they need a physician. He didn't come for the well. He came for the sick who know that they're needy, who know they need healing. He came for sinners. 
In the parable, the implications even go deeper if we think about what's assumed but not exactly stated in the story. Here's what I mean. The feast is ready, right? The table is set. The time for the feast is now. The invitations to those at the crossroads, the good and the bad, that invitation is for them to receive and respond to now. Come is the invitation right now, which means that cleaning up is not part of the invitation. Going home and getting better clothes is not needed to come to the wedding. There's no time to go shopping for a wedding present. Nothing in your hands you bring simply to the wedding you come. There's nothing you bring. You just come. You come as you are. As we sang earlier, come, ye sinners, poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus ready stands to save you, full of pity, love, and power. If you tarry, if you wait until you're better, you will never come at all. All the fitness he requires is to feel your need for him. We don't clean ourselves up to come. Because true cleansing can only be found in Jesus to whom we come. We can't buy our way in with some present. Because we need Jesus to pay for it all. Or to change the metaphor from a wedding, how about a ransom? Matthew 20, verse 28, Jesus said that he came to give his life a ransom for many, to be a payment for those who were in bondage, that they might go free. That's what the cross is all about. That's what it's for. That's why he came. So whoever you are here today, wherever you are before God, whatever your past, whatever you've done, there is no disqualifier that puts you outside the parameters of his invitation. If you've never heard the invitation before, I hope you understand that you're hearing it now. You're hearing it now. The invitation to the divine banquet of God's love in his son is held out to you now. Come. You must come. You must respond. And don't think indifference will do. It won't. And if you have come, Christian, follower of Christ, if you have come to him, then know that you have already come into God's wedding feast for his son. That's the realm in which we dwell. Oh, it feels like a chaotic world around us. And messy it is. Evil 
It is indeed. But what you can't see with the eyes in your head is that we are in God's feast right now. So wipe off that frown. And don't worry about the chaos all around. Look around with the eyes of faith at an unseen realm. Hebrews 12 talks about it. You have already come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come with innumerable angels in festal gathering. You have come to the assembly who are enrolled in heaven. If our sins are wiped away and we have entered in to the eternal cosmic wedding feast, then we can be assured that it's only going to get better in the end. There's a whole lot more of Isaiah 25 still to come. We've read the end of the story and we know we will dwell with him. There will be a marriage supper of the Lamb, says Revelation 19. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and sorrow will be no more, says Revelation 21. And if you've come to Jesus, those realities of the new heaven and the new earth are already ours in principle. We just don't see it or feel it all yet. Now and not yet. And if that's you, if you have come into God's wedding feast, then we should know that this wedding feast continues. And hence, the invitation is still valid. And hence, we are now those servants who are sent out into the highways and byways to call on any and all who will come in to join us with the feast. Yes, I know it's mixing metaphors. We are both at the wedding feast, enjoying it, but we are also the servants outside the wedding feast, still calling others to come in with us. So doesn't our parable so well foreshadow how Matthew ends his book with the Great Commission, with Jesus' final command to his followers, go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Not just the highways and byways, but go to the ends of the earth, to any and all. And that was the plan all along. That's why Julie read for us earlier from Psalm 67. Let all the peoples praise you. Let all the coastlands stand in awe of you. Let the ends of the earth fear your name. That was the plan all along. Our parable might sound like the king came up with a subpar plan B. You know, the real invitees didn't come. And so he got desperate and just wanted anyone to show up. But that's just the parable. And be reading too much into the parable to think that. No, the whole of the story of Scripture is that that was the plan all along. Now, back to the parable 
it seems like it could end right there. It seems like it could end with the happy and hopeful words of verse 10. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. Amen. Let's sing a song and go home. But parables often have a twist at the end. And so fourthly, there's a required garment spoken of. A required garment. Verse 11 But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. What was this wedding garment? I think we know that there has to be some cultural dynamic here that isn't completely represented in our culture today in our weddings. And that's true, but truth be told, we don't know exactly what it represents. We don't exactly know what the cultural norms were around weddings and what exactly this wedding garment was like. So some have suggested that the man came in without proper wedding attire, that he didn't change his clothes, that he didn't get dressed up. But that doesn't seem to fit with the preceding details of the story where the food is ready, the tables are set, and the people are invited to just come, come now. So others have suggested that the wedding attendees would be given a special sash on their way in to wear at the wedding. It would let everyone know who's supposed to be there And it would identify everyone with the event and the wedding. And that makes more sense. And if those invited were simply coming in off the streets, coming in as they were, coming in from work, then it makes sense that whatever the wedding garment is, that the king would provide it. They didn't have it. They couldn't go home to get it. It would have to be provided by the king. But the more important question is what the wedding garment represents in the parable. Not what it was culturally at any given wedding in those days, but what it represents and what it teaches. Elsewhere in the Bible, garments, garments, clothing, Robes can be representative of righteousness. So in the Old Testament, Isaiah 61, verse 10 says, He has clothed me with the garments of salvation, covered me with the robe of righteousness. You hear that? Zechariah 3 similarly says, Remove the filthy garments. Behold, I've taken away your iniquity, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And later in the New Testament, in the book of Revelation, we find similar imagery. In Revelation 7, the saints in heaven are clothed in white robes, and John 
the apostle is told. These are those who have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. What irony. Blood that washes white. And now they're clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And so some would say that the wedding garment of our parable represents Christ's righteousness imputed to us, covering us. And certainly that's a biblical concept. And yet, Revelation 19 also uses this imagery of the bride of Christ being clothed in fine linen, pure and white, but there it also says, and their robes are the righteous deeds of the saints. So others would say that the wedding garment of the parable actually represents the fruit, the good works that flow out of true faith in right relationship with God. I say it could be either. Both are in the Bible. I say it could be both. And I say that it might be pressing things a little too much to try to say either. Because likely the point of our parable and the point of the wedding garment is simply to communicate that this man had come in to the wedding on his own terms. He had come in presumptuous. He had come in self-willed. Like Frank Sinatra, he came in singing, I did it my way. You see, when confronted, the man was speechless, verse 12. He, he had nothing to say. He had no excuse. He had no reason for why he didn't have a wedding garment. It wasn't a matter of him not knowing something or him not having something or not having time to go home and get something. This man came in on his own terms. John MacArthur puts it so well. He says the man had been utterly presumptuous thinking he had come to the king's feast on his own terms and he was proud and self-willed and worst of all, he was insulting to the king. Arrogantly defying royal protocol, he was determined to be himself. And MacArthur goes on to liken it to Cain's sacrifice in Genesis 4. Remember, he was determined to make his sacrifice his own way, and it was not acceptable. So while this man seemed to respond favorably to the invitation and seemed to have come, he did so on his own terms without regard for the appointed means, even the provided means. This is a man who was presumptuous. And therefore, regardless of what the wedding garment represents, we should all be warned to not come to God on our own terms, presumptuously and carelessly. For it is a matter of heaven and hell 
It is a matter of eternal significance, according to verse 13. The king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot, cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is the language of hell. Hell is real. Hell is real bad. And hell is real long. We don't want to go there. So here's the point of this parable. I'll put it in a sentence or two. God graciously invites any and all to come into the glorious celebration of his son. But he threatens terrible things for those who will not come or determine to come on their own terms. God graciously invites any and all to come into the glorious celebration of his son, but he threatens terrible things, and justly so, for those who will not come or try to come their own way. You'd think the parable would end there. But parables have twists, and then sometimes another twist. So Jesus says in verse 14, this final comment, for many are called, but few are chosen. The call is the gospel call, the invitation to come. Those chosen are those, in the language of Ephesians 1, they are chosen before the foundation of the world. Chosen means just what it says. It's what Paul could say of the Thessalonians in 2 Thessalonians 2, that God chose you to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. Now, it is mysterious. It is mysterious that we are genuinely responsible to respond to the invitation and to come, to believe, to trust, and that God is sovereign. He's sovereign over it all. He is the one affecting it, causing it, and planning it from before the foundation of the world that we who do respond would respond. That is humbling. That is humbling. As Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1, you should consider how you got saved. Not many of you were wise. Not many of you were the, the smart ones, but God chose what is not special in the eyes of the world, that it would confound those who think themselves special. God saves in such a way that no one can glory in themselves or boast in what they've done. This doctrine is humbling. And it is God-glorifying. And ultimately, it is assuring. This doctrine shouldn't lead any genuine believer to doubt their salvation, but to all the more feel its solid, unshakable security. 
To be reminded that salvation is of the Lord from the beginning to the end. That he who began it before you were ever born will see it through way past the day you die. And when we doubt, because genuine believers will, we look outside of ourselves. We look to a merciful God. We look to the doctrine of election, yes. We look specifically to Jesus, the Son who came. We look again to the invitation, which is so gracious and free. We look to the ransom that Jesus made upon that cross. He has given us a meal by which to remember this. It's the Lord's Supper. We'll take of that meal in just a bit. Let me first pray, then we'll sing, and then I'll lead us through the Lord's Supper. Yes, Lord, we thank you for your word, for the meal, and for all that your word says and all that the meal represents. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the gospel. We thank you for salvation. We thank you that you graciously invite the bad and those relatively good to come into your glorious feast. We don't deserve one bit of it, but we happily enter in and enjoy it. Help us now as we sing of it for our good and your glory. Amen.